0: John chapter 14, please, our practical theme of the coming of the Lord. Now, last Sunday, we tried to emphasize the point that the coming of the Lord is is practical. Um, Some years ago, a street preacher preaching on the coming of the Lord Skeptic in the audience yells out, that stuff, that's all pie in the sky when you die. The preacher said, well, actually it's steak on your plate while you wait. (laughs) And, um, hey, we like steak, don't we? Like a barbecue. Hey, had a barbecue at Luke's on, uh, Friday night. It's more of I, I said a, uh, a meat meet or a meat-a-thon, something like that. You know, standing around the barbecue eating meat. Now that's understand the principle. The coming of the Lord is practical, the way we live. The apostle John in his first epistle says this, that he, that person who has this hope purifies themselves. They live different. And so we want to think about John's gospel a little bit, by way of introduction, before we read our passage in John chapter 14. Um, John's gospel is the last gospel written. It's different than the other three. It's different than Matthew, Mark, Luke. Most of his material is unique to himself. Uh, John was a student of the Old Testament. The scriptures that he studied was the Old Testament. C.H. McIntosh, who was a student himself of the Old Testament, said this, that one of the most profound and comprehensive chapters in the Bible is Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 is the Feast of Jehovah, the Feast of the Lord. Elwood McQuaid, linked with friends of Israel, has a little commentary on the Gospel of John called the Outpouring of the Spirit. He says this, You cannot understand the Gospel of John apart from the Feast of Jehovah. In fact, he says this, 70%, almost 70% of John's gospel is in the context of the feast, the feast of Israel. You think to yourself, is that true? Well, um, what's the most famous chapter in John's gospel? Well, probably three. I'm mean, I say three because 316 is the best known verse in the world. What's the context of John chapter 3? Doesn't have to be rhetorical, you can answer. What time of the year was it? Passover. That's how chapter 2 ends. Now the time of the Passover. So, um, seems Elwood McQuaid's theory stands in John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 14. Hey, maybe the most second read or known verses in John's Gospel. John chapter 14. What time of the year was it? Passover. John 7. Feast of Weeks. Right? Feast of Tabernacles, Booths. Uh, The Lord Jesus went up to Jerusalem to observe and honor the feasts of Leviticus chapter 23. So we want to hopefully tie those ideas together. Now, John chapter 14, um, if Leonardo da Vinci was to paint this picture, he would call this the Last Supper. You know, in the 15th century, he did that. He painted a picture of the Last Supper. I mean, uh, we've seen his art. We've seen others. Others depict this on the night before the Lord Jesus would go to the cross. Uh, Leonardo, uh, in his picture, it has this sort of... um, You can see that the disciples are a bit disturbed. Something has bothered them. Um, They tell us the artist was thinking of of, um, chapter 13 when the Lord Jesus said, "Um, one of you will betray me. And so it starts this inner turmoil, who it would be, who could it be. Uh, Sometimes artists uh, portray this kind of serenity at the scene, a sort of a peacefulness. (coughs) But we know that from chapter 13 not to be the case. John is very specific in giving us the flavor of the upper room. What it was like. Um, The Lord Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to, uh, well, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer, die, and on the third day be raised. And um, Luke tells us They understood nothing of what he said. Uh, Then in Luke chapter 22, he institutes the Last Supper. And uh, immediately underneath that passage, you know what happens? Do you know what happens? It says they began to argue as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Man, they were in trouble, those guys, hey? Aren't you so thankful that never happens anymore <laughs> in the church? <laughs> I had a friend in Hunter Mall where I used to live. She struggled with how messed up the church was. I used to say to her, Sister, if you think I'm bad now, you should have seen me then. I'm here in church fellowship because I'm so mixed up, because my family is so broken. And I said, in fairness to our brothers and sisters, that's what often brings us to the Lord, isn't it? Tragedy, brokenness, things not working out. And so um, this is often the challenge. People come in from the outside and expect to be perfect But it's not. And so what happened with those who walked with the Lord Jesus, heard his teaching for three and a half years, hey, even on the night before he went to the cross, there were lots of problems. Um, The last verse of chapter 13 is the Lord Jesus' beloved disciple Peter telling the Lord, Lord, all the rest... I don't know about them. They probably would deny you. I myself never would. And so, in that context, if you had to preach a message to that group, what would you preach on? Reconciliation, forgiveness sin, unrighteousness? Well, we don't have to speculate. We have what the Lord Jesus taught that group on that night. John 14, verse 1. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. Grateful for fellowship together. We would confess to you with united hearts that except you build the house, men labor in vain. That except you give light by your Holy Spirit, we cannot understand. And so, Father, we would cast ourselves upon you for your blessing. For your instruction, pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, the section of scripture we're starting to read in, John chapter 14, is what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is the last message that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his disciples. It's not very long, it can be read in 35 minutes some have pointed out that every doctrine, every doctrine taught in the New Testament epistles is in seed form in the Upper Room Discourse. Think about that. That's a pretty bold statement. Every doctrine taught in the New Testament epistles, is in seed form in the upper room discourse. Think, would it be possible to condense all of the teaching of the New Testament epistles into one 30-minute message? Hey, the Lord Jesus could summarize the Old Testament in one sentence. (laughs) This is what they came and they asked him. Hey, come on, what about the law, the commandments you know those 613 that we acknowledge the lord jesus said love the lord your god with all your heart soul strength might and your neighbor as yourself on these hang all the commandments hey it would still be the case right if you would love the lord your god all your heart soul strength mind and your neighbor as yourself you'd be okay. Ah, you might, you know, uh, be challenged to say, well, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Remember, that's what happened when the Lord Jesus challenged the experts in the law. And so the fact that some make bold statements like every doctrine and seed form, we say, we, we could see that. We wouldn't be surprised at least. And so... John chapter 14, what is the Lord Jesus talking about here? He is talking about the rapture. He is not talking about what some refer to as the second coming. Now, we said last week these are connected ideas, but they're stages. So, John chapter 14 is not Matthew 24, 25. It's not the same. There's radical differences, opposites if you will. Um, John chapter 14 the 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 catching up is to blessing right? What's happening here is being caught up to to be with the Lord. that's what heaven is, right? I mean I mean it's kind of hard to define or describe heaven. One man who wrote nearly half the New Testament went there. He says, really, words aren't going to help you that much. I couldn't express them. You couldn't understand them. But we know this. Heaven is where Jesus is. Martin Luther said that um, if Jesus is in hell, hell would be heaven for me. If Jesus isn't in heaven, heaven will be hell. Heaven is where Jesus is. That's the hope, the blessed hope. And I suggest that when John wrote his first epistle, this was the night he was thinking about. You know, In the context of all this dissension and, and broken relationships, mistakes made, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples about heaven. So... Keep your finger here, and we'll seek to prove this point. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, last week we said there are three major passages that teach on the rapture. We said John 14, we said 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, last week we worked through 1 Thessalonians. We saw that the rapture is each chapter. But specifically we want to think about now, chapter four of First Thessalonians. The Apostle writes, verse 13 of chapter four, "I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have a fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope." Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So if you could take chapter 14 of John and put it side by side with First Thessalonians 4. Are there similarities? Do you see any? Give me one. Go ahead. My wife sometimes says to me that um, I really like preaching at camps, but I especially like 8 to 12. Uh, I like 8 to 12 because uh, they like to answer, hey, 13, when the peer pressure comes on. And they don't like to answer, they don't like to be wrong. 8 to 12 doesn't matter. I'm wrong. I'll try it again. She says, sometimes you allow that to come over in your preaching, and this isn't always the environment. And so, you say, I'm not sure if it's rhetorical. Am I supposed to answer? Well, you don't have to. But there are similarities. Let me give you one to start. Let not your heart be troubled. First Thessalonians 4, the last verse. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. John 14, receive you to myself. 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord Himself. Sometimes the evangelical church makes the mistake of looking for the Antichrist. Who is he? Where is he coming from? Who might he be? Lots of speculation. Hey, we're not looking for the Antichrist. Jesus himself is who we're looking for. Now, where I am, John 14, there you may be also, the Apostle Paul, forever with the Lord. That's the hope of the church. And so, hey, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, what do you notice about that sentence? Well, you notice a couple of commas. What does that mean? It's one sentence, but it's broken up by commas, So we know this, that it's one idea made up of three distinct ideas or stages. And so to properly understand 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we would have to have a working knowledge of Scripture. And so turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll try to gather up some ideas and then come forward again and rework through that verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 23, as we already pointed out, C.H. McIntosh, one of the most profound and comprehensive chapters in the Bible, lays out accurately God's timetable made up of the seven feasts of Jehovah. Now, the first, the Sabbath rest, is distinct. And so, really, the feasts start in verse 4. On the 14th day, it says of verse 5, the first month at twilight in the Lord's Passover. Now, God's timetable has always been exact, Uh, In Exodus chapter 12, you remember that the lamb was chosen on the 10th day, right? It was inspected till the 14th. The evening of the 14th, it was slain. Uh, That started the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll read about. But on the day after the Sabbath... There would be this presentation of first fruits. This is how it unfolds. So that would be three days later. So it would turn out that the 17th day of the month would be the Feast of First Fruits. And you think, well, just a random idea. Is it random? There was a point when this whole globe was covered in water. You believe that, right? And there was a man who had been floating in a boat with um, his family and lots of animals. He'd been floating for a long time. At a certain point as the water started to recede, that ark came to rest on a mountain top. Do you remember what day that was? That was on the 17th day of the 7th month. Uh when you turn to Exodus 12 the Passover what month was that That was the 7th month So the feast of first fruits was celebrated on the 17th day of that same month because you remember in Exodus 12 it said that month would become the the 7th month would become the first month of the year for you people So the ark came to rest on the 17th day um, Passover, first fruits, celebrated on the 17th day. It's the same in the New Testament. What day did Jesus come into the city of Jerusalem? Remember when he was announced king? Palm Sunday. The 10th day of the month. Uh, Sunday, Thursday, 14th. Evening of the 14th afternoon, twilight, probably the same exact, hey, able men have shown that probably the exact time as the Passover was being slain, the Lord Jesus Christ was expiring on the cross. Hey, God's timetable is accurate. He's right on track. Jesus is coming back. He came the first time at that exact moment in time when he was due and he's coming again. And so Leviticus chapter 23 is important. It starts with the Passover. Now we think about the Passover. Has the Passover been fulfilled? Yeah, No speculation required. Right? First Corinthians chapter five. Christ our Passover sacrificed for us. right? Already been done, uh, followed by uh, the Feast of Weeks, or sorry, the uh, feast of um, unleavened bread. This ongoing feast. Uh, number three feast, feast of first fruits, verse nine onward. Uh, the wave sheaf, it says in verse eleven, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, to be accepted on your behalf. Has the feast of first fruits been fulfilled? Verse chapter. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. That's Paul's point in resurrection that the Lord Jesus Christ like this pictured here in Leviticus chapter 23 the first fruits offered that's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ resurrection Sunday so he links that to the resurrection Is resurrection important to Christian faith yeah who's seen Lee Strobel's movie you've seen that remake or it's not his movie but it's his story who's seen that have you guys seen that It's good stuff, right? Do you remember there's this point when his Christian friend says to him, hey, why don't you go for the juggler? He's like, yeah, yeah, I like that. What do you mean? What's the juggler? He says, the resurrection. He's like, I'm on it. Well, you know what happens, right? Hey, Christ rose from the dead. Seen over 500 witnesses. That's Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of First Fruits. Then what? Uh, what's number four? So number one is the Passover, followed by the the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you remember as you read in the New Testament, Luke always puts those two together, right? They are together. Um, and then number three would be the, um, what was it? fruits. That's three. Number four? Feast of Weeks. Pentecost, how many days after? Yeah, right. Seven, seven, sevens, forty-nine, and the day after that Sabbath, right? So, uh, hey, again, you could read books and point out that the timing of this whole thing is is exact. And so, number four, the Feast of Weeks. Then what happens? Well, then what happens? Verse twenty-two. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And so this uh, important chapter, Leviticus chapter 23, is divided... Four and three. The first four with this break of the harvest in the middle. I suggest to you that's the day in which we live. I mean, there's a harvest going on, right? Uh, That was never the challenge. The challenge was never that there wasn't a harvest or a great work going on. The challenge, you remember, even for the disciples is that they could see it. right? That's what the Lord Jesus said. You remember that's in the context of John chapter 4. Uh, They'd already been into that town, right? You remember they went in there to buy meat. You say, well, you know, that's the problem where I live. Nobody wants to hear the gospel. They're not interested. Hey, well, that those same disciples could have said that of Samaria. Was this town of Samaria ripe for the gospel? It was ripe. You remember the woman, when she met the Savior, she went back to the men of her village and said, Hey, come see a man who told me everything that ever I did. Could this be the Messiah? And so they came out and they heard. Then they asked and they heard again. Seems like the whole city was saved. And they come to her and they say, Hey, just so you know, we believe. But not because of what you said, just, but we've heard him Ourselves, And so, sadly, the disciples had already been there. And so the Lord Jesus says what needs to happen is um, we, I need eyes to see what the Lord is doing. He's working. He's working in the world. This is the time of the harvest. And thankfully, even today, tens of thousands, maybe even more, are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the time of the harvest, this period of grace. I remember a Jewish brother came to our assembly and worked through this little passage here. You know, that that God said, and he doesn't just say it here. He says it in Deuteronomy chapter 24, too, that when when the Jews were to uh, harvest their fields, if there was a sheaf forgotten, they weren't to go back and get it. They weren't to uh, harvest the olive trees twice, or the vines twice, just once. They were to leave the remainder for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And this Jewish brother said, Do you think God would command something to others that he himself would not be willing to do? Would he do that? Did he leave a sheaf in the field? Yeah, he did. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. One born out of due time. The Apostle Paul was that sheaf that the Lord left in the field. You remember he called himself the Apostle to the Gentiles. He didn't come behind in any gifting. And so we're here today... Western society, if that's where you're from, because of the call of the Apostle Paul to come west with the gospel, and and so the time of the harvest, but it's coming to an end. Uh, The fifth feast, the Feast of Trumpets, verse 23. So one is Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, their Feast of Weeks, time of the harvest, this break, then the Feast of Trumpets, Uh, seventh month again, that's when it's going to happen. So there's this long break after the Feast of Pentecost, this long break of nearly four months, and then in the seventh month, in the seventh month comes Feast of Trumpets. Ten days later, the Day of Atonement, right, that's the sixth feast, that's in verse 26 onward. And then lastly, the last feast, number seven, and just a few days later, right, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we have seven of them. We have this break, which was what we're suggesting, is what we're suggesting, that's the day in which we live, this time of the harvest. So that's sort of an overview of Leviticus chapter 23. Now it's not extensive, but I know you've had some teaching on it recently, so. Turn to um, Daniel chapter 1. Now, the greatest book on prophecy, certainly in the Old Testament, is the book of Daniel. Future events. Now, you've heard it said, and Believe it to be true that you can't understand that other great book on prophecy, the book of the Revelation, apart from an understanding of the book of Daniel. So, think of all this prophecy contained in this great book. What prophecy is there in chapter 1 of Daniel? Think about it. What prophecy is there in Daniel chapter 1? There isn't any. Nothing. Uh, we thought about, uh, we often think about, uh, you know, how can we be an influence? Right? Well, how do we be an influence to others? How can we be an influence for good? Right? That's what the church should be answering. Here we come together as a body of believers. And how can we go out and, and really influence people? I think Daniel was an influence. Think he influenced people? I can't imagine a bigger influence. Hey, not just in one kingdom, but three. Here's a man who rose to power in three kingdoms. How hard do you think that is? Hey, that's impossible apart from the Lord. And hey, hey, hey. He didn't just rise to power. Hey, people loved him. Darius, when Darius came in and took over the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel. Daniel led him to the Lord. I mean, he loved Daniel. And so it wouldn't be hard to believe that, that Daniel was, was his right-hand man. And so Darius comes in and, and takes over the kingdom. Who think he'd get rid of Daniel? Doesn't. He loved Daniel. Hey, when his 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 uh, his right hand men trapped Daniel and he's cast into the lion's den, what did Darius do all night? <sighs> he didn't sleep. Remember, he got up early in the morning. Daniel, has your God been able to save you? So he rose to power in three kingdoms. Cyrus as well. Daniel chapter 1 is how Daniel was different than everybody else. Hey, our strength as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is not how we're the same as everybody else, but in fact how we're different. Separation is a biblical doctrine. And so chapter 1, Daniel. Daniel didn't eat the same as everybody else. He didn't dress the same as everybody else, and yet he had real influence. And so this carries through the book. That's Daniel chapter 1. Now, we don't have to read the verses. You're familiar with them, right? That's what all of chapter 1 is is, is about. What motivated Daniel to live like that. Say the fear of the king. I don't, I don't quite buy that. If you mean Nebuchadnezzar, hey, he was a great man. Hey, he didn't need to follow the laws of the Medes and the Persians, remember? The laws of the Medes and the Persians in Darius Day said, hey, you wrote it, you stamped it. You have to abide by it. Remember this is what they said to Darius. That's not Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, whom he let live, he let live, and whom he killed, he killed. A world potentate. The only time to this point in the world has been done. And um, Daniel stood before him and told him to repent of his sin. That's what chapter 4 is about. That's, 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 that's Nebuchadnezzar recounting his testimony. So fear of the king? Uh, yeah, that king. Not an earthly king. And so Daniel gives that for us in chapter 12, the last chapter of the book. Verse 13 says, But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the day's. Daniel was motivated by the next life. That's how he was able to live separate. He had his inheritance in view. People say it's hard to live in the world today. So many things to look at, so many temptations. Hey, those things we look at, fantasize about, they were reality for Daniel, right? I mean, they weren't just movies. They were the reality of the things he was exposed to and he lived in separation from those things. And so although sometimes he didn't get invited to the party, hey, when the writing was on the wall, they knew who to get. Daniel. And so he had this inheritance in view. Who's telling him this message? Uh Verse one at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. He goes on to talk about what's going to happen yet in future events in the book of the Revelation. But what we learn from this passage is that um, Michael, the archangel, is connected with Israel. Uh, Daniel had an inheritance. He looked, right? for something future. Uh, He had in common those saints from Hebrews chapter 11. Let's turn Hebrews chapter 11. Again, we're trying to uh, gather these ideas together and then go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we have the feasts. Leviticus chapter twenty-three. Um, seen how that lays out. We've had some thoughts through there. We've seen that Daniel lived a separated life in uh, with future events with this inheritance that he was looking forward to. That this kept him separate. That his strength in his ministry was his separated life. Uh, that fits with what we had in in. Um, First John, that he who has this, that person who has this hope purifies themselves. They live different. And so now when we come to uh Hebrews chapter eleven, actually the writer can go back and find all kinds of people who live like Daniel. A long list of people. Old Testament saints. That's what they are. Right? Men and women uh, who lived. For the future. I mean Abraham. Abraham spent his whole life living in a tent. You know how hard that is. Right? Ask Ben. He says, "Uh, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm building a trailer. (laughs) Right? I'm not going to live in a tent when I go camping. And I hear him. Hey, uh, your friend... uh, Doug Kazin, you remember Doug Kazin? Did you ever meet Doug Kazin down this corner? He was big on future events. He said to me one time, hey, nothing brings the flesh out of me faster than camping in the rain. And I think, yeah, I hear you. And so, uh, you know, sometimes people might be forced to tent a little more than they'd like to. Abraham spent his whole life living in a tent. Did he have to? Could he have afforded anything better? He could afford to build a a city. Hey, not very many people in the Bible are called rich. But Abraham was one of them. He was loaded. He had an entourage of 1,500 people. And he lived his whole life in a tent. Why? You don't have to guess. Hebrews 11, he looked for a, a city whose builder and maker was God. So he lived past This life lived for the next. And so now here's an interesting verse. The very end of Hebrews chapter 11. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us. Now, there's a them and an us. So who's the us? Well, that's us. Who's the them? That's them, the Old Testament saints. Now, notice this this here. That they, that's them, the Old Testament saints, should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, I don't profess to understand how it's going to work in heaven. Um. The church referred to as the bride of Christ. The Old Testament saints something else. But they are not second class citizens in God's economy. Hey, they went without so that we could have. God's no man's debtor. And, and, And so the writer here says that those Old Testament saints will not be made perfect apart from us. So, I suggest when we turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we see this great verse we've been thinking about. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. you know who that's for? That's for us, the church. Now, we learned last week that Uh, Today, in the day in which we live, the day of grace includes Jews and Gentiles, right? Brought together in the body of Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout for the church. Uh, With the voice of an archangel. Well, I would suggest to you that that's Michael, the archangel. That's Michael, the archangel, coming for... Old Testament saints. Uh, Hebrews 11 says they won't be made perfect apart from us, as if to say it's going to happen at the same time. Uh, Hey, the Lord Jesus doesn't need help resurrecting his church, his bride, with the help of an archangel. He doesn't need it. Uh, Michael, the archangel, is always connected to Israel. And so I would suggest to you that's what's happening. And then it says, with the trumpet of God, well, that's Leviticus chapter 23, God's prophetic clock will start to again tick. And so um, sometimes people uh, say, well, that doesn't sound right. That's not what I thought. It's not what I believe. That's not what I heard. Hey, this is something I came up with. Read Harry Ironside's book on Daniel. And you'll see this is what he taught. This is what he believed. And others too. Um, We know this, that um, in our thinking, what's going to happen next is the Lord Jesus is going to come back to the air and the church is going to be raptured. And then there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ for believers, right? Where we uh, give account of the things the Lord has given to us, right? And those things that... that, um, Disgust us about our own work, our impure motives, right? We know, don't we, that, that um, sometimes even when we do the right thing, it's for wrong motives. Do you guys, do Americans do that? <laughs> um, Canadians do. Uh, Jabe told a story of two boys skating on Lake Michigan. The ice broke and one boy fell through and, and his friend was able to shimmy out on the ice and, and save his friend. He's a town hero. The newspaper is uh, interviewing him. Saved his friend. And so he said to the newspaper, well, what else could I do? He was wearing my skates. <laughs> and so this idea, even the right things for the wrong motives, hey, the bema, We'll burn away all that dross. It'll be gone. And um, then some say, ah, the marriage supper of the Lamb, us wed to Christ. Can I give you one more verse? Turn back to John chapter 3. Who's got e sword? Who has e sword? Do you have e sword? Do you have e sword on your phone? You don't keep e sword on your phone? Okay. Um and do you have the uh do you have the um uh KGB with Strong's numbers? Okay, so in John chapter three, this is John the Baptist speaking. He says, um, verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom. Dave, what's that word friend mean? Ah, uh, yeah, it could be translated best man it'll say it'll say further down in Strong's numbers the best man hey, hey, the best man isn't envious of the bridegroom he's his best friend, and so this was the challenge that's the context of John chapter three people thought hey aren't you aren't you envious of introducing people to Jesus and losing disciples? John says, no, I'm going to be the best man. The bridegroom's wedding. So if John's not there, it seems like it couldn't happen. John will be there. How did he get there? Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, voice of the archangel. So there's a lot of other holes in things to say, yeah, there is. Um, The Lord Jesus on the cross said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? Remember that. Well, paradise, most likely Abraham's bosom. Right? Luke chapter 16. So, they would have gone to paradise, and just like it had been prophesied back in the Old Testament, this is what Paul quotes. Paul quotes in... Ephesians chapter 4, that he, that's the Lord Jesus, the one who ascended, first descended. He descended into the bowels of the earth. He led captivity captive. He went down into the bowels, gathered together all those Old Testament saints, and he led captivity captive. And as he passed by on his ascension to the throne, to his Father's right hand, he gave gifts unto men as he passed by. So that's how they got there, and they're waiting their inheritance, just like us. And so Harry Ironside says he's looking forward to standing in that same line with Daniel. He says, I'm not going to be standing next to him. I know that. He'll be way up. I'll be back, but I'll be able to ask him some of the things. Hey, the coming of the Lord's a practical doctrine. And so as we're reminded in verse, this is how John ends the book. Even come, so Lord Jesus, let's pray, Father, um, thank you for your word, and we ask that you could take and uh, make something of what was said and could uh, bless our hearts uh, and bless your people and Father, that you could make us a blessing as we would go forth, that um, we could live uh, in the expectation of your coming, that we could live purified lives, that we could live separate. And that maybe you could, even as you did with Daniel and others recording the page of Scripture, you could bring people into our lives whom we could bless, whom we could befriend, whom we could point towards your Son. Father, we uh, pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus. At the same time, we we, we realize that we have friends, people we love, who aren't ready for the Lord Jesus. And so we pray for them uh, and pray that you would use us to bless them. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.